we're speaking today with Representative John Curtis, Republican from Utah, elected in 2017. He also served two terms as mayor of Provo, Utah. And today in the House, he serves on the full House Energy and Commerce Committee, and I believe on the Subcommittee on Environment and Climate Change. And we're here today to talk to him about a couple of things, including his participation on the Conservative Climate Caucus and the views of those who are proponents of more conservative climate and clean energy solutions. So welcome. Great to be with you this morning. I was just going to hop in on the first question, Congressman. I have kind of fascinated with this Conservative Climate Caucus. And I think as conservative members, particularly in the House, I think you would say that there's been at least some recent progress on some of the energy policies that you guys are pushing for, and certainly you have pushed for, including inclusion of carbon capture provisions, which we've seen go in the first infrastructure bill. And on the other hand, we have Democrats on the Hill and the Biden administration pushing for more regulation, natural gas, methane, other regulatory actions that few conservatives support. So given those two sort of tensions, what's your sense of whether conservative energy and climate solutions are on the ascendancy? And are there other examples you would cite there? I couldn't think of a better question to start with because it points out how urgent it is for conservatives to engage in this conversation. Regrettably, I don't have a good answer for you because If you look at all the proposals, you'll hear nothing about nuclear. You'll hear nothing about trees. You'll see things like shutting down the Keystone Pipeline and then urging our OPEC plus partners, our enemies in some cases, to increase production. You see the demonization of natural gas. It's all headed in the wrong direction. And this shows and points out the reason it's been a mistake for many conservatives to stay on the sidelines in this discussion. I can't think of a time, Dean, when when we're needed more and there's more urgency to us engaging in the debate and bringing our ideas forward. One of the things that I think is kind of fascinating in the interplay on the Hill is there's been sort of a push where we've seen congressional support for clean energy and other tax incentives. You know, there's debate, but at the end of the day, through tax extenders and other packages, Congress relents and agrees to continue on these incentives. Now, in the context of that, we're often hearing that there's going to come to a point where, particularly in the House, Republicans are kind of growing increasingly skeptical of sort of just continuing this sort of ad hoc and continued tax credits. So I'm wondering, do you think it's time to figure out a way to either tie those to some performance measure, wind them down? Where do you think Republicans as a whole are going to be moving in the next few years on the issue of incentives? You're absolutely right. Um, We create these incentives with very good intent. And I think if you look not just in this category, but any category where government puts in incentives, we're very reticent to take them away, even after we've reached our objectives. And I don't think there's any better example than solar. I sat in, in Moab, oh gosh, it was probably last year, and we were having a group discussion about this. And there was an executive from a solar company there. And he said, listen, take them away. You're making us lazy. I'm the first to tell you and admit to you that you're making us lazy. And that's what incentives will do. When they're first put in place, we're trying to to influence the marketplace. We can have a debate about whether or not that's a good idea. But after we've had that influence, if we don't take them away, all we do is breed uh, laziness. And um, I I don't mean to pick on the solar industry because I'm, I'm very fond of them and I think they've done an amazing job. But you'll notice that 
as these incentives ratchet down, it still works, right? They say, oh, we're not going to survive. We're not going to survive. And then they ratchet it down and son of a gun, they survive. Right now, solar is an incredible value. Uh, I think none of us would have dreamed that it would be the value that it is today. And uh, it's time for us to refocus those, put those incentives where they can do more work. I I feel like if I don't plagiarize here for a minute, I want to quote a famous author that says, why was this regulation created? What problem was it trying to solve? Does this sound familiar, Dean? Uh, How old is it? (laughs) Has it achieved its purposes in practice? Does it still make sense? And so uh, Dean's smiling because these are your words. But it's so true. If we don't ask these questions, these incentives go on and on. And really, the biggest problem with that is, A, we we make an industry lazy, and B, we could better target these incentives to something else that we want to have happen. Sarah, do you have some thoughts on this? Yes, I've got a couple of thoughts. The first thing is, it's not just, say, solar or wind. We have federal tax incentives for the oil and gas industry that are over 100 years old. They really never do go away, and industries then you know, become dependent upon them. There are some great solutions to this problem that are being entertained in Congress right now. One of them is a new piece of draft legislation from Senator Crapo of Idaho and Senator Whitehouse of Rhode Island. So you've got a bipartisan piece of legislation and it is a technology neutral energy incentive. And it's pretty terrific because it's technology neutral. It focuses on solving the problem, which is reducing emissions of all kinds and promoting American energy innovation. And it actually has a phase out as your energy technology goes to market, your tax credit automatically phases out. So that's a a pretty good piece of legislation. I know Tom Reed has introduced the companion bill in the House. So, you know, that's something coming from Republicans trying to be forward-looking, addressing the innovation problem, addressing the emissions problem, but also addressing, you know, this never-ending tax incentives for energy issue that we also have. And I'm wondering there, I guess, as a follow-up, my question for the congressman would be, in the distant future, where do you see this issue going? There's obviously a glide path. That was what was assumed as a sort of a glide path for tax incentives. And then over time, clean energy would become competitive. But it seems like we do have some competing ideas out there. One is on the sort of regulatory side is this clean energy standard idea and, you know, requiring states to meet a certain portion of their energy needs with renewables. And so we'll have to wait and see in the near term whether any of those kinds of things move forward. But where do you think we should end up in terms of how we drive different energy sources and at the same time, try to make them as clean and low carbon as possible? Where, where should we be headed? I love the question. I think too often we don't start with the end in mind. So, so let me just remind us all, the end in mind is a reduction in worldwide greenhouse gas emissions. Now, if we don't start with that in mind, we get really excited about putting charging stations all, all over uh, freeways around the country, but we don't really ask, does it move the needle to the end goal? And, and I think this is, is a huge problem that we have right now is we've got all these ideas that feel really good. They make me feel like I'm like I'm really doing a good job. But let's admit it. How does putting charging stations around the country change worldwide greenhouse gas emissions And does the money we put forward to that equal the proportion of worldwide greenhouse gas emissions reduced? I would say probably not. Nobody knows because we haven't asked that question. So I think as we talk about this, you mentioned, I think Sarah mentioned technology neutral. Government is a terrible picker of winners and losers, right? Why 
Why do we think we're so smart that we know what all the answers are? And I think it'd be far wiser, start with the end in mind, try to be as neutral as we can and let the marketplace dictate the, the winners and the losers, right? Because they'll do a far better job than government. And I'm wondering, Congressman, you know, when we're talking about EVs, EV charging stations. We spend a lot of our time as reporters and, and policy folks talking about that. When you're back in Utah, what is the interest level on policies like that? On one hand, I definitely see and report on the surge of interest in electric vehicles and getting more charging infrastructure. But I sort of wonder if that need is percolating back in districts such as yours, where people are saying, you know, I really want to see us move forward on that. I don't have the kind of charging infrastructure. Does this ever come up? Or do you feel like this is an issue that hasn't yet really spread into rural and suburban populations the way it might need to? Well, let's be honest. Uh, Who can afford an EV right now? It's not your average man or woman on the street. So the, the group that gets really excited about this is the group that can go spend a hundred plus thousand dollars on a Tesla or something. And of course they want charging stations. So as they drive to Las Vegas, they can make sure that there are charging stations along the way. But most people smile and say, mm, you know where that fuel, you know where that energy comes from that charges those is coal uh, when you charge here in Utah. And, and that's what I mean by like, really, are we really asking the right questions? Yeah, and I, th- I think there's some alternatives. I was going to ask Sarah about this, even in Utah, some developments on hydrogen. Can you talk a little bit about that, Sarah? So we did some work with, you know, several other partners and uh, State Representative Melissa Ballard here in Utah this year on hydrogen. Again, thinking about technology neutral and outcomes, hydrogen is a, a great zero emissions energy source. It can be used for transportation, for electricity generation. You know, here in the Salt Lake Valley, we've got some world famous air quality issues. And, you know, one of the things we can do is put hydrogen powered generators, say, at the airport or some of our our major commercial installations um, instead of diesel. And that will make a a huge difference. So we provided a little bit of support. A lot of other people did a lot more work. It's always a team effort to get some hydrogen incentives here in Utah to support the deployment of hydrogen and frankly, give them parity for the incentives for other zero emissions energy. It was really about creating a level playing field because, um, you know, they didn't have an incentive when everyone else did. Kind of an odd um, reverse way of looking at, you know, the market, you know, when everyone has an incentive, but your new technology, then you are at a huge disadvantage. So that's another reason why technology neutral is so important. And Representative Ballard has also done some great work um, with the Rainy Center's LAMP program, which is the Leadership Alliance for our perfect union. We are an organization of almost 800 state lawmakers across the country. And uh, this is one of the issues that we work on. And she came with us. We met with her congressman about federal policy on hydrogen. So this matters to Utah a lot. You know, we've got some air quality issues here. We want to see them improve and we want to see it done in a way that that's smart, that's focusing on solving the problem instead of just focusing on specific technologies and industries. I would follow up um, that, Sarah, with maybe a question about nuclear, because in the sense, Congressman, that we get in the same conversation around advanced nuclear as we do around hydrogen, which is what is the role of incentives and that that kind of early support in research, which is needed when the payoff might be a couple of years away, but it appears, at least from you know early indications, that it, that these are very viable 
you know, ways of getting to cleaner energy if we can make them work. So what is the appropriate role for Congress in this instance? Well, well, let me point out, first of all, I don't think there's any clearer path to our end goal of reducing worldwide greenhouse gas emissions than nuclear. And uh, we don't have to, I think too often we think of nuclear as our as our grandparents' nuclear, right? Which scares some people. But well, I sat down at breakfast a, a, a week and a half ago with a BYU professor who explained to me how molten salt and, and using the byproducts from that, he thinks he can get to zero nuclear waste. Well, why aren't we talking about that, right? Why aren't we exploring about that? And to your point about Congress, Congress is totally ignoring nuclear right now. The irony of that is Joe Biden has asked us to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by half by 2035, at that same day, our nuclear will have been cut in half from 20% to 10% of our energy mix. We're going the wrong direction. Congress needs to step up and realize the, the potential of nuclear. A, get out of the way because we're killing it with regulations right now. And, and B, if, okay, if we're going to do incentives, let's, let's talk about advanced nuclear and help people understand we're not talking about a, 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 the same nuclear that, that they stress about, worry about, and, is, and has some branding issues. And uh, I think this is a huge mistake for Congress to, to not be talking uh, about nuclear right now. Yeah, and I guess as an aside, um, Sarah, certainly if you want to speak to this, is um, it always comes back to the waste issue when you when you talk nuclear. You know, is there any way forward where five to ten years from now we're talking in the U.S. about having some solutions around what so far has been kind of an un- it's it's an untenable waste storage situation. It's not good for the industry and it's not good for, you know, to necessarily for security issues from the reports I've read to, as to where it's kept now. So is this something that we're just never going to figure out? Or do you think that there's a way forward someday to, to really tackle it? I, mean, I think this is where focusing on research, development, and innovation matters because, you know, there are advanced nuclear technologies, such as the ones that Representative Curtis mentioned, that reuse waste that create very minimal waste. Also, I think there's a reality that we should all discuss because of the controversies around Yucca Mountain. Many of our nuclear power plants have been storing waste on site for decades and it's been safe. Uh, We haven't had a disaster. We haven't had an accident. And there's also another reality that doesn't come up in this conversation. You know, we're not just talking about emissions. We are talking about human health, human health and the environment. And uh, there was an interesting study in Lancet, which is a well-respected medical journal a few years ago, and they looked at the number of premature deaths caused by major baseload energy sources. And nuclear has the lowest because it is zero emissions. It's not contributing to the, you know, 2 million plus people who die prematurely every year because of air pollution from industrial energy sources. And that's even when you factor in casualties associated with, say, Fukushima, or Chernobyl. So I think we also need to be, you know, optimistic and investing in advanced nuclear research and development to get to that zero waste goal or reusable waste goal. And we also should be realistic about what are the costs of all forms of energy in terms of human life that we've experienced already. And the answer there is that nuclear is one of the best. Yeah, Sarah articulated so well. The, the health aspects there that are important, but let me bring in the economic aspects as well. As, as so many solutions on the table want to totally destroy our economy, this advanced nuclear, particularly if the U.S. can lead out and be the ones who develop this, this has the potential to lead the next, what I would call, industrial revolution 
where United States is providing this technology around the world. So we're not only boosting the U.S. economy, this end goal of reducing worldwide greenhouse gas emissions is, is you know, put on steroids because if we're able to develop the low-cost leader and it's, and it's nuclear and it's U.S. technology and it's safe and all of those, why it just stuns me, right, that, that that's not really something that we're discussing. Yeah. I'd like to ask a, a sort of a forward-looking issue in terms of the upcoming campaign. Congressman, if, if Republicans win the House next year, what do you think will happen with that package of GOP-backed package of climate solutions, including trillion trees and some other uh, proposals? Like, is that going to be the priority? Are they going to really make that the priority? Because I think a lot of, there's some skepticism out there that that is great as a political document, as an alternative to Democrats' plan. But there are a lot of Republicans that uh, in the House that are that are reluctant to do anything that says has climate change attached to it. Yeah, well, let me use this moment to brag a little bit, if I might. Uh, the Conservative Climate Caucus has 70 members uh, right now, 70 members, Republican members signed up. That's a third of the entire House of Republicans. Every ranking member of a committee of jurisdiction has signed up for this. We have a momentum that we've never seen before. And I think, you know, to, to answer your questions, absolutely, yes, this momentum can't be stopped. We, we reached 70 members in the first two weeks, and we've been in recess, so we haven't even had a chance to recruit other colleagues to join this. This, this was the low-hanging fruit, the 70 that joined. I, I'm going to bet you we're, we, we reached as much as half of the caucus as memberships of this before too long. Now, let me tell you something that I think is really encouraging. Kevin McCarthy has put together a climate task force. Garrett Graves, uh, very well respected, is going to lead that task force. If you look back at the China task force that we had last year, that task force met and came out with some concrete, widespread proposals that hit all aspects of, of our relationship with China. I've forgotten the exact numbers, but it was something like 180 bill recommendations. Two thirds of those bills were bipartisan. I fully expect that this task force that Kevin McCarthy's put together, by the time we we take the majority, which we'll take, uh, we'll be ready with not just a trillion trees, but a wide spectrum, right, that that hits all aspects of this, that, that we can move forward and say, I hate to use this this term, but it'll be our Green New Deal, if that makes sense. This this is our plan. And it's not just single focused. It's very broad. And I'm going to bet you see that the majority of the Republican conference get behind it. Sarah, how do you see this going forward? I'm just going to do some self-promotion here. I had an article in Issues in Science and Technology in June that explored what Republicans in Congress, like Representative Curtis, are already doing, the policies that they already support that contribute to or will lead to um, reduced greenhouse gas emissions or adaptation. And uh, if anyone is interested in seeing, it goes through very specifically some of the bills, some of the approaches, obviously U.S. global leadership staying competitive with China and Russia in the energy sector is an, a one big area where public-private partnership and you know both Democrats and Republicans are concerned and Republicans have been leading there. So the idea that Republicans haven't done anything on this issue is 
you know, untrue. I mean, Donald Trump, people don't realize, actually signed a carbon price into law, a provision in the tax code, again, an incentive, which we can debate the merits of, but it was an incentive for carbon capture. And that was something that we had a broad bipartisan agreement on and that Republicans led the way on and it's going to lead to reduced emissions in the long run. So I think it's really important to to keep that in mind. And all of these things that Republicans are working on policy-wise are one of the reasons why the congressman has been able to launch this caucus and why they have such great momentum now. You know, and as a follow-up, sir, I guess I'll ask the congressman first is, we certainly have been writing for decades about IPCC reports and warnings of, you know, climate change that were long before this last draft report of the summer, talking about whether we're already in too far along in terms of rising temperatures and sea level. So I wonder if we could speak a little bit to that in terms of the tension there, because you have on the Democrat side, the further you go to the left, you have people talking about big policies which don't fare as well politically, such as carbon tax or even emissions trading, which we tried in the cap and trade bill. But on the farther you go to right of center for Republican policy ideas, I think that the complaint out there is that do they, when you put them all together in a basket, do they meet the challenge of what the scientists are, you know, increasingly seeing as this climate emergency? So can you, you know, can you rely on a more market-based and incentives and pushing developing industries and still make a dent in this challenge, which looks, you know, from all that we're reading is, is looking to be worse and worse every year. I think this is a really good example of twisting the science. And this is one of the reasons Republicans have not engaged is it turns them off when you say the earth's going to blow up in seven years. Right now, I'm, those are my words, but those are the kind of implications that you get. And unless we stop all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, the world's going to blow up. Well, that's just not the science. The, the, the science is you could stop 100% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow and we will fail, right, because of this problem of worldwide greenhouse gas emissions. And I think Republicans need to do a better job of articulating, look, our solutions are far broader than just shutting down the U.S. economy so we stop greenhouse gas emissions. Here's the reality of the science. We're on an upward trajectory of warming. We know that. If we stop even worldwide greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, that trajectory is going to continue to climb. It's not an on-off switch that we're going to flip. So therefore, we need to be talking about the reality of slowing that down, getting it, 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 it bent and then going the other direction. But that is a process. It's not an event, right? That process will take years. And the quicker we move through it, the quicker we'll, we'll come out of it. But it's not an on-off switch. And too often we talk about it like if we don't stop all greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, the reality of it is the Earth's going to warm. We're going to have impacts. We're not talking enough about those impacts and mitigating those impacts that are coming no matter what we do. And I think it's been a mistake. And this is where I think Republicans can lead out and say, look, we need to be talking about seawalls. We need to talk about rising sea levels. We need to talk about areas that will be changing, will not be able to sustain crops the way that they have. Let's start preparing for that today. And by the way, yes, we absolutely need to start reducing the greenhouse gas emissions because the sooner we do, the sooner we'll make that bend. Sarah, what do you think about that? I think that I would never bet against American ingenuity. And I think that's 
a place that Republicans can lead and bring Democrats along with them is creating a market and creating an economic ecosystem that is solutions oriented, that creates jobs, that again, builds technologies that we can export across the world. You know, if we wanted to do something about climate change seriously, you know, we've had nuclear energy, we've had atoms for peace for decades, for over twice as long as I've been alive. And we haven't done that. I also, I like to say that I remember who was in charge of the House of Senate and the White House when Waxman-Markey was not passed. And frankly, (laughs) it didn't pass because they didn't have broad democratic support. And part of it is the reality of balancing everyone's quality of life today with, you know, with a threat, an emissions threat, a an environmental threat that isn't quite as obvious. You know, as that threat has become more obvious, I think, again, the adaptation measures are important. And I think Republicans, again, they've already been leading on that, talking about flood insurance reform, talking about, you know, permitting reforms that allow some of these things like seawalls or even wind turbines to be built more quickly. And there's a lot of opportunity there. But again, I wouldn't bet against American ingenuity to solve this problem. I think we can do it. I wanted to follow up with a specific policy question, Congressman, about I saw you had launched this bipartisan Congressional Energy Storage Caucus. It's a policy area that interests me a lot in terms of battery storage and other energy storage, because almost all of the research that we've been reading the last couple of years talks about there, there just has to be this, we're really going to have to ramp up energy storage if we're going to accommodate all, all of the renewable energy that will be needed to get to net zero emissions. So where do you put this in terms of its level of importance? Most of the years that I've covered bills in this area, they are providing some incentives around the margins and helping on the research end. But if I step back and I look at the 30,000 foot sort of development on, on energy storage, it does not seem to be moving as fast as it would need to be to be sort of a credible addition to the salute, the basket of solutions needed here. So what needs to happen there? I'm going to go back to Sarah's word, which is don't bet against events against U.S. innovation. The problem is we've throttled that innovation. So on the one hand, you have incentivizing it. On the other hand, you have just downright throttling it. I have no doubt if you unleashed American entrepreneurs, we'd have this solved in short order. But right now they're competing against Chinese battery storage that's subsidized right, that doesn't have the regulations that we have, that's produced in very dirty and, 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 and very likely human rights violating environments. To unleash that innovation that Sarah's referring to, all our folks are asking for is that level playing field, right? And if we can create that level playing field, they'll, they'll, they'll crush it on this. Why is it important to your point? Look, this is our bottleneck. You can have all the renewables you want, but if you can't store it, then you're dependent on the sunshine and the, and the wind blowing. So really, if we're, we're going to achieve our goals, we've got to have storage. Storage comes with so many benefits. And um, I, I just think it's time to unleash the, the American innovation and, and, and let them solve this problem. Yeah. And as a follow up for that, Congressman, we're circled back to this issue about rare earth mining and, and minerals mining, the kind of uh, domestic supplies that the U.S. might need 
not just for energy storage, battery storage, but for EV batteries, for wind turbines, pretty much any technology that's out there that is part of the solution relies at least in part on some of these minerals. And yet we're sort of at a standstill in the U.S. on that issue. We talk about the need to have a domestic supply here for security reasons, but there doesn't seem to be much movement. I wonder, do you think the U.S. can continue to advance and be somewhat of a leader, certainly, in some of these clean energy areas? without assuring a, a domestic supply for the next few decades? No, we can't. And let me just point out the hypocrisy here. This, this is just, it just is stunning that we're okay with mining by, by children overseas is okay, but mining here in the United States is not. Somehow, because we don't see it, it's okay. Yet we want to drive our, our EVs. We want to use these, these materials. And so we keep demanding them, but we, it, this is kind of like the keystone, shutting down the keystone and telling OPEC to, to ramp up their production. We have to admit that these are important uh, to our goals and that it's better to mine them here in the United States with our safety standards, with our emission standards, with all of our standards, all of our human rights standards, than to let this happen overseas. Yeah. Sarah, I think I've talked to you about this issue. What, what are your thoughts there? It does seem like it's a tough one because no people don't want the environmental impacts. And we also have the of in the last, I would say in the last few years, a lot more sensitivity, uh, which is welcome to tribal communities and other folks that are, are along the perimeters of, of this mining law. So there's a concern about a sensitivity there. So what... Where do, you, where do you think we're going to end up? And is there any, is there any uh, possibility of a solution here? I think that it doesn't do us any good to save the planet and lose our souls. <laughs> and I think most Americans would agree with me on that. Obviously, the extractive industry is necessary for clean energy technology. There's a lot, you know, photovoltaic cells primarily come from petroleum. They require petroleum-based resources to be manufactured there's a lot of copper in a wind turbine and, of course, rare earth minerals, et cetera, uh, in uh, batteries and electric vehicles. Um, we have to be realistic about the environmental impacts of all of the above energy. And I think one of the things we need to do, again, is to continue to innovate and think about we have reduced the environmental footprint of coal mining, of oil and natural gas extraction very well over the last um, 50 to 100 years that we've been engaged in this activity. You know, the cleanest societies are the freest societies. You know, we value that, but it's not going to do us any good to pretend there's no problem because the environmental impacts are happening somewhere else on the earth. You know, one of the amazing things about climate change is that it is a global problem and it does require us to step back and say, hey, all of us, all of the humans on this earth need to work together and recognize that we're all part of the solution. And I think this rare earth uh, situation illustrates that. The other thought that I have here is I was at a conference recently and I forget the name of the speaker who said this. Um, it was a gentleman from Africa. And he said, the difference between the US and China is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, i.e. America is great because America is good. And when we talk about you know, extraction and production, again, you know, there are big differences. You know, we don't use child labor. We don't subsidize labor costs with arguably slave labor, the way that is happening in some other nations. And I think it's important for us to remember that 
and to say, hey, if we want the benefit of energy, we don't want the benefit of that energy on the backs of our neighbors, on the backs of children across the world. We want good energy. And good energy isn't just zero emissions energy, it's ethically sourced energy. And I think, again, it's another reason why we need to be innovating to find in an all of the above way. We've got to find ways to develop all of our energy resources to use them in a zero emissions way and with the minimal environmental footprint. Yeah, I wonder if I could just follow up. I have another question, but I'm wondering, you know, I was asking earlier if Republicans uh, are uh, take control of the House after the midterms. I mean, I think there's some wariness about dipping too much into the mining issue. It's a tough one. It's a tough one out West. Do you think, but do you think there'll be any sort of serious reckoning here, maybe even with, among House Republicans to say, I think traditionally you would you would not expect to see sort of a pro-mining legislative move come from Democrats. So should we expect some, some action on this from Republicans to, to try to push for ways? I would imagine that would have to be in the areas of permitting reform. We'd be getting in the areas at least around the margins of NEPA. But do you think there'll be any appetite for really grappling with that. I think so. And I think one of the things that gets lost in this conversation is all mining is not alike, right? So we say, we talk about extraction as if we're cutting off mountaintops and that's extraction. Well, let's, let's define what our standards are and then challenge the extraction industry to live up to those standards. I think they're game for it, right? And so th- there are a number of ways to extract uh, minerals and other things from below the surface of the earth. They're very non-invasive. And, uh, and then there are also places where even those non-invasive techniques are not appropriate. So as Republicans, Lytton conservatives, let's acknowledge that. You know, I'm, I'm, I represent one of the most beautiful districts in the world. We don't want extraction underneath the delicate arch, uh, right? And so uh, understanding where and when and under what conditions should be really the discussion versus extraction or not extraction. I know from uh, my own experience shopping for EVs and comparison shopping, one issue on the affordability area is, to be clear, there are there are examples of models that you can get for well under the Tesla range. Like you can you can get, go out there and get a, a Volkswagen or a Chevy Bolt, et cetera, for a lower MSRP than, you know, a hundred grand. But here I'm really wanting to get at just even beyond the new models, which can run you in the 30s and 40,000 hour range, is there's not a lot of incentive for people in the used market. The used market for EVs is it's a really tricky one because we just don't have um you know, you don't get the tax incentives because you're not buying a new car, right? But if you're uh, just trying to scrape by, but you'd like some of the benefits for making more of the cleaning up the air in your neighborhood, which EVs sort of, you know, besides not having that exhaust can also save you some money. But if you don't have a lot of money in your household, you can't go out there and just buy even a used one if they're priced a little different. Is there any interest in sort of getting at that issue of you can only get to many of these products if you have economic resources, at least to begin to take advantage of a tax break, or as some like to say, you know, what's a tax break when you don't have a lot of income? It doesn't mean a lot, right? So is that something that Republicans are talking about? I know that they're talking about this in California and some other states, getting at that used market. Is that valuable? Well, let me just say and point out, like, my example that Teslas are $100,000 doesn't mean to imply there aren't less expensive options. But but I'll bet you a dollar you stand on I-15 and you count 
right, um, and, and do a demographic research on the people driving EVs up and down. This is this is not our, our, our more disadvantaged class using these vehicles. And I think that's to your point. I've looked at the used car market. I don't dare buy one. I don't know um, how, you know, how long that batteries get, how long it is before I have to go replace those batteries. And can I afford that? It, does that make good economic sense? Can I afford a, to, to, to bring an electrician out to my home and wire my garage so I can charge this? Uh, right. And all of those questions that, that people have are just making this more of a vehicle for, for those with more means. But let me come back and ask this question, like, is this really something that we aspire for, for everybody to be driving an EV? We don't have the answer to that because we haven't done the research to know how that will change the worldwide greenhouse gas emissions. It feels really good. I'd love to buy an EV because it would make me feel good, right? But but is that the best way for me to contribute uh, to, to solving this problem? And I just don't think we have the answer to that. Since we are talking to someone from Utah, I want I have to ask about public lands because I know that's more of a House Natural Resources Committee debate. That, but it certainly occurs, you know, throughout the caucus and in, and throughout the House. Every time we have a Democratic administration, there tends to be a, a much more conversation about using public lands for clean energy and also looking at more of the regulation of fossil fuels whether it's uh, methane from natural gas. We saw in this last administration, toward the tail end of that administration, we saw some rollbacks of some public lands areas that had been declared, I think it was by Obama. And so, you know, this is a big tension. We're trying to move. It seems like everybody is on the same page in terms of trying to drive these clean energy technologies forward. But then when we get into the public land arena, then lots of things start to break down. And I wonder, can you sort of give me a sense of how do you view the best you know, use of this public lands in terms of driving solutions, but also where do you come down on this issue of, you know, is there too much public land in the West? We hear this all the time from Western, particularly House members. And that land, much of that land, it's argued, belongs in private hands to, to create jobs and natural resources. Where do you think that balance should be struck? Well, I, I, let me just uh, tell everybody that's listening. I have seven counties that I, that I oversee. Four of those seven counties are over 90% federal lands. So, so wrap your arms about that for a minute. If you're an elected official and only 10%, and in some cases, 6% of your property produces uh, property tax, how do you pay for schools? How do you pay for police? How do you pay for roads? And then we come in and say, oh, by the way, on these public lands, you can't make any money, right? And, and no wonder we get pushback. Should we be surprised that the good people who, who try to eke out a living, who try to make a high quality of life are frustrated that we're saying ah, no property tax? And, and yes, you get payment in lieu of taxes, but let's, let's all acknowledge it's a fraction of what that would generate if it were in private hands. And then we're not going to let you extract. And some people would take away all revenue sources uh, on, on public lands. Of course, they're going to push back. Of course, you're going to have Western congressmen and senators say, we have a huge problem here. This is the reality, and I alluded to this before. Not all public lands are alike. Not all of them are a national park-type material. I have acres and acres, miles and miles and miles of sagebrush that are public lands, right? So, so let's bifurcate the discussion and say, we're not talking about... Um, areas of, of cultural significance. We're not talking about areas of, of, of natural 
uh, beauty and things like that. We're talking about areas where extraction would be appropriate. We're talking about extraction in a way that does not destroy the land. We're talking about extraction of, of, in many cases, material that will increase our ability to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Why can't we have that conversation? Why can't that be a thoughtful conversation instead of a demonizing conversation, which is the way that we approach it right now? I, I think if we just change the way we talked about it from an open-minded, what is best uh, in, in, into that instead of this demonizing everybody that, that uh, advocates for extraction, we could find the common ground, I think, to move forward. And as Sarah mentioned, make those those ethical decisions about is, do we need this material? Is it best to extract it here in the United States under the conditions that we can control? And we just don't have that dialogue going on right now. Sarah, what do you think? Do you think we're headed to a place where we can have an honest discussion there about the best use of public lands? and Or, or are we sort of stuck in this dynamic? Protect public lands for public use, you know, for hiking and all the things that we enjoy. But then, you know, other folks um, certainly have an economic argument that, you know, for a lot of people who need jobs and we have this tech, we have local needs for things like schools. Is there, are there any, is there anything on the horizon that suggests we can have like a, a serious conversation about solutions there and strike a balance? I think so. You know, we're talking a lot about environmental justice in the Biden administration. And what Congressman Curtis might not realize is that he's made a really terrific case to, in some of his comments about electric vehicles and about public lands, a terrific conservative case for environmental justice. You know, thinking about how do these environmental policies impact our communities economically, whether they're rural or urban or communities of color, is a huge part of environmental justice and environmental policy, and we cannot ignore it. Um, I think that that going forward, we have a lot of opportunities to look and, again, use this rubric of what's ethical. How are we using this land? Making sure that there are, you know, not onerous processes, but processes that allow people to be noticed and participate, to understand what opening up this local land is going on, that's federal land to more development is going to do for this community. You know, what might the environmental costs be? What might the, the economic benefits be? And, you know, we're in a great position now with technology where so many of the things that we can do for the environment are also great for the economy. So I think it's important to start thinking about where can environmental stewardship and economic growth and economic stewardship work together. I think that's part of, of the conversation here in a big way, even on, on electric vehicles. You know, people want clean energy. And they want for clean energy to be affordable. They deserve for it to be affordable. And I think part of that is going back to, to ingenuity, to innovation, towards, again, transparency about that battery and that electric vehicle that you might be considering buying on the used car market. There are so many pieces of information that would help everyone make better decisions for, for themselves and their communities if things were a little bit more transparent. There's a well-known plant on the Navajo Reservation, a coal-fired fire plant that shut down. But what's not discussed is that coal was produced by another neighboring tribe, representing 80% of their revenue. So already a tribe that's, that's struggling lost 80% of their revenue when we shut down that power plant. Fine, but nobody's doing anything about it, right? Nobody's rushing in to say, well, 
we're, we're going to help you develop a, another industry. We're going to help you right bridge this gap, gap into transition. And instead, we stand back in Washington, D.C. and say, we're going to teach them all how to code. Right? We're going to show them we care. Right. And that's, that's pretty hollow if you just lost 80 percent of your revenue. Absolutely. Especially when there are, you know, other solutions. There is a great demonstration plant. It's actually natural gas fired, but I believe the company is working on a coal fired plant and it runs on something called the alum cycle and it's zero emissions and it can, it captures the carbon and converts it to a usable resource. You know, we're not talking about saying, Hey, how could we put a zero emissions coal plant on the Navajo reservation that allows the neighboring tribe to still produce coal, you know, in as responsible way as possible and preserve their economy. And I think, again, that's where we need to talk about economic and environmental stewardship working hand in hand and looking at what are the technological solutions that are out there that could be part of it. And where does government, you know, need to be streamlined? Where does it need to make reforms to help those kind of things happen? One of the interesting things, spending more time writing about the, the environmental inequities and the environmental justice issue is there definitely is an undercurrent of skepticism uh, from from activists and folks you know frontline communities that there is a window of opportunity to really try to get attention to this issue, get real resources, uh, because the feeling out there seems to be that, you know, if if we go back to having Republicans in control of Congress or the White House, this issue is going to be muted again. And we're not going to be discussing um, how that those communities have really borne the brunt of pollution and um, and aren't and aren't gaining the benefits of, of the U.S. clean energy revolution. So I'm wondering if First, with you, Congressman, do you think that this the issue of these environmental inequities is reaching Republicans? And do you think Republicans will have an answer to that and will not necessarily allow that issue to disappear if they wind up controlling a certain part of Congress? So Republicans bristle at the extremist. Right. So when the, the transportation secretary says highways are racist, Republicans are going to bristle. Right. But but when you go down to the actual facts and say, look, we have hurt this community here. By the way, all intentions were good. Many of these these plants, these facilities were moved in these communities to provide jobs. I think the original intentions were very good. I don't think it was realized some of the impact that would come from those and, and the problems that they would cause. But I, you know, and here again, looking at my district where we, you know, these these communities recruited coal-fired power plants because they needed the jobs. Right. So uh, Republicans care deeply. And this is one of the problems I think that Republicans face is a branding problem. Sarah mentioned some things that, that historically Republicans have done for the environment. We do a terrible job of taking credit for that. We're branded as not caring about the environment. We're branded as denying the science. And, we, and it's our own fault because we don't talk about it enough. So I think Republicans need to stand up, show we do care, uh, show which policies that we have that will protect these, these communities and I put that on our shoulders. We need to do a better job of this. Well, I'm thankful to both of you for participating in our fireside chat today. I think, you know, we're in a good place. If you look at just the existence of the Conservative Climate Caucus, we've got a third of House Republicans in that caucus um, committed to talking about actionable policy solutions. Yes, this is going to be an ongoing, continued conversation at the federal level. and. I think, you know, the caucus's existence alone represents that. 
in terms of these environmental justice issues that you mentioned, you know, again, rem reminding ourselves that the cleanest economies are the freest and most prosperous economies and understanding that creating economic opportunity is going to create better environmental outcomes. And if we are in a situation where we've created economic opportunity and it hasn't produced better environmental outcomes, you know, we need to ask ourselves why and, and address that. You know, people should have access to opportunity. They should have access to energy that is, is clean and that's also affordable. And we need to keep those things in mind. And I think that Republicans and conservatives are well positioned to have that conversation about affordable energy and clean air and economic and environmental stewardship working together to lift everyone up. Congressman, last word. I want to first thank both you and Sarah Hunt and the, and the Rady Center for, for holding this. Any last thoughts from, from Congressman Curtis? Well, let me share a little message of hope. I, I'm really uh, pleased with the number of Democrats that reached out to me as we started this caucus and said, we want you to be successful. And I, I view that as a really positive thing. I, I, I was taken out to dinner a couple of times. I have a couple more when I get back to Washington by Democrats who said, how can we help? And to those who are skeptical of what we're doing, I'd say, you know, give us a chance, watch us um, a, a little bit, give us a little bit of, of runway, right, to, to show our, our good intentions. There are some well-meaning Republicans and there are some well-meaning Democrats who, who want to work on this issue and pass significant uh, legislation and, and make a, a very big difference. And I'm excited to be part of that. And thank you for allowing me to uh, be with you this morning. Thank you, Congressman Curtis. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for the Rainey Center. I'm Dean Scott from Bloomberg. Thanks. This has been a good conversation. I appreciate all the time also, Congressman. Thank you again to the Rainey Center for holding this forum. I really appreciate it.